This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hello and welcome back to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm very excited and honored and humbled to have Dr. Shannon Prince here with me today. For those of you who have been listening, you may have caught the first episode with Dr. Shannon, and unfortunately, due to legal and liability reasons, we had to take that episode down. But we're coming with a second recording with just as much magic, medicine, and wisdom for your ears. For those of you who don't know Dr. Shannon Prince, she is an attorney, a legal commentator, and she's an author of Cherokee Descent. Her book, Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community, just came out on November 30th, and she represents the Cherokee Nation in its landmark lawsuit against the opioid industry for causing the opioid epidemic on its reservation. And she has done a lot of volunteer work creating resources for Native American nations seeking to gain federal recognition and is trained in Native American mediation practices. She earned her bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College, her law degree from Yale Law School, and her master's degree and doctorate from Harvard University Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Not only that, but she is an avid fast shawl dancer, a medicine keeper, a yogi, and a bead worker. And I know you're going to be just as inspired as I was listening to this conversation. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for being here and I hope you enjoy it. Tanse, hello and welcome to the Matriarch Movement podcast. I'm very excited to have this conversation not once but twice with uh, Dr. Shannon Prince. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, Shannon, she was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, but due to legal reasons, we actually had to re-record. So just knowing that um, we're coming in with still an open heart, open mind, open eyes. And thank you so much, uh, Shannon, for being here today. If you want to introduce yourself, where you're from, the traditional territory from where you currently reside, uh, thank you. Thank you, CEO Ayasali Dagwadoha. Hello, my name is Shannon Prince. My Jalagi or Cherokee name is Sally. I'm from Houston, Texas, and I am currently living in White Plains, New York. And how how are you doing? How has the last uh, few weeks been for you since we last uh, spoke to one another? Oh, it's been wonderful. I'm really excited that my law firm is launching the Tribal Affairs Task Force Scholars Program, where we're going to be bringing in Native American uh, law students to do an externship with us. I'm one of the founding members of the Tribal Affairs Task Force, and we are very disheartened about the fact that Native Americans are the most underrepresented race in the legal field in the United States, only point percent of all lawyers are Native American. And I'm just so blessed to be at a firm where we want to do something about that. And so I'm really excited to be getting that moving forward. That's awesome that there's um, finally some momentum and some movement happening behind that because I recognize, you know, even in Canada, uh, Indigenous people could even have legal counsel or a lawyer until like, I believe it was like 1960. So we weren't even a part of like the legal process here in Canada. And so for that to now be shifting where Indigenous people um, are now taking up that space and becoming the lawyers, it's it's great to see that happen. And I'm, I'm curious to know more about your journey on, you know, what made you want to get into law and how did that first evolve for you? 
Sure. So when I was growing up, I lived in a family that had a tradition of medicine keeping and the elders in my family would basically describe the forest as a sort of pharmacy where you could go and gather natural medicines. And I loved that. But I was also dismayed by how much tradition had been lost. I felt like every generation of my family had just a little bit less to pass on just because of assimilation, not because of not caring about the culture, but just because of the natural that occurs in a colonial society. And then when I was graduating from Dartmouth College, I had the opportunity to do a Dartmouth undergraduate fellowship in outer Mongolia and to be of service to the indigenous people there. So uh, this fellowship was with the Darhat and the Tuvan people. The Darhats are yak herders. The Tuvans are reindeer herders. And they were in the process of their own cultural revitalization because Mongolian culture was taken over by the Soviets during the socialist period. And indigenous culture, as it almost always is when there's an invasion, was severely repressed. And so at that point, they were about... um, you know, a generation into democracy and they wanted to get their traditions restarted. And just as an indigenous person from the other side of the world, I wanted to be of service to them as they did that. And so one thing I went to do was to write an ethnographic reference guide that people could use as a resource as they restarted their traditions. So I spoke with shamans, elders, culture keepers of all kinds, wrote down information about their traditional medicines, their spiritual practices, whatever they wanted to share to pass on to the next generation. And we published that book bilingual um, in English and in Mongolian. And during the course of that adventure, I got adopted into two families. I was adopted as the granddaughter of a Tuvan woman and as the daughter of a Darhat couple. And the mother of the family was dying because gold mining corporations come to Mongolia and they use things like arsenic in the extractive process. And those things get into the water supply and kill people. And Mm. I thought, if I become a lawyer, I can advocate for people like my godmother. And so I'm very... um, blessed to now, as a lawyer, get to advocate for people. I'm Native peoples. I'm proud to call the Cherokee Nation one of my clients and also the Oneida Indian Nation one of my clients. And how has that um, progress been for you from going um, to realizing like this is that you wanted to vouch uh, for Indigenous voices to now doing so? How has that shift been for you from, you know, having that vision to now now implementing it in the world around you. Uh, How has that been? How has that journey been for you? I think that one of the ironies of it is to advocate for Indigenous peoples in law can often mean that you aren't located in an Indigenous community. So as I said, in America, only 0.4% of lawyers are um, Native American. Law is actually the whitest profession in the United States. So people of uh, color, of different colors are underrepresented. And so to be in this space where I can help these clients with the most pressing issues facing their tribal nations means that I'm in a space where I'm always the only one in the room, the only Native person, the only person of color. And trying to figure out how can I make this room more diverse? How can I 
kind of help create a pathway for people to follow in my wake. And so Mm. I just have to really stay rooted in my values, in my why, to recognize that sometimes you have to go beyond your comfort zone, beyond your community, to advocate for your community. If you want to do high stakes law and be there when these tribal nations have these existential crises, then you may have to do that in a place that's not terribly diverse, but you can go there Mm. and diversify that place. You know, you Mm -hmm. can be the corrective to that. And so just kind of living in that tension yeah and i think it's it's a good reminder to know that like activism takes many forms and Mm -hmm. the roles that we play we each have a different role when it comes to you know catalyzing us to our full potential and to healing and to being in union with one another and i love that you bring up you know law is has left out marginalized communities for so long and still still does and so i'm curious to know your process of you know, studying law within a colonial institution, how did you remain rooted to your truth and to your purpose when you didn't see anyone that looked like you in the room with you? So I think that uh, there's kind of a threefold answer. The first thing is to just search really hard for the people who are like you, but who may be a little bit hidden away. So when I uh, went to Yale Law, I was in the Native American Law Students Association, and I was an officer in the association. And one thing we did was just be really aggressive about creating our archives and figuring out how many Native Americans had come before us. And the law school wasn't really sure. They thought it had only been a handful of people. And truly it was, but it was a bigger handful than we thought it was. And so we tracked those people down. We asked them about their journeys. We got advice. We made sure that we knew who those people were so that they could be a resource for us and for those to come after us. And then also uh, we took advantage of whatever resource were there for us. So for example, Mm. Yale has this program called Directed Independent Language Study, where if you and some friends decide that you want to learn a language that the university doesn't teach, you can write a proposal and they'll hire a language teacher for you. So Mm. I'm of Cherokee descent. A few of the people in um, the law school with me were of Cherokee descent. And so we said, let's ask Yale to hire us a Cherokee language teacher. And they did. And so we just looked around and said, like, okay, how can we make this space more native and just (laughs) buy us out of the box And then I think, so that was one thing, just kind of looking around for ways to indigenize the space. I think another thing is bringing your culture with you. In America, we kind of have a saying that everywhere is Indian country. And so for me, there's this practice that, I'm sorry, I say America in the arrogant United (laughs) States way as though we're the only country in America. In the United States, we have that saying. And one uh, practice from Cherokee culture that's very meaningful to me is called going to water. And the traditional way you do this is you go to a river, which in the Cherokee language is actually referred to as a long person, and you enter it and you pray to Unat Lanahi, the creator, to take Mm. away everything that you don't need. But Mm. Cherokee culture is so elastic and you can adapt it to different situations. And so even if you're not near a river, even now I'm in the 16th floor of an apartment building, you can cup some water in your hands, 
pray into it, mix your breath with the water, and then let it go and let it take away anything you don't need. And so you can be in a law school where there are very few people who look like you, but there's still water there. There's still that resource Mm. that people think is sacred there. And you can just go to the dorm, sink, cup it in your hands. You know, you might look around, make sure nobody's around, do it privately. And just, you know, say that prayer and accidentally take away anything I don't need, whether it's self-doubt, whether it's a feeling of loneliness, whether it's discouragement. You know, you know why I'm here. You know why you sent me here. I want to serve my people. And so that's another piece of it. And then I think the third part is making sure that that environment is better for those who come after you. And Mm. I think that's so like natural in indigenous culture. We practice Mm -hmm. seven generations thinking. And so one thing we would do in the Native American Law Students Association is we would reach out to undergraduate programs that had high percentages of Native American students. And we would say, let your students know if they want to apply to Yale Law, we will be their personal application counselors. We will walk them through this process Mm -hmm. every step of the way. And we were so delighted when one young man who uh, we were able to help with, with he was, when he was applying, actually got into the law school and the medical school. So this is a Native American man who's going to be a lawyer, doctor, and oh, have those wow. two Yale degrees. <laughs> That's amazing to know that there's so many Indigenous people that are reclaiming and utilizing their gifts. And I love that you bring up water because that's something that has been so healing for me in Vancouver. And that's honestly why I'm scared to move from Vancouver because it's the direct connection to water and to life source. And I literally would intuitively go down and do the same thing. I would say a little prayer and be like, okay, just take off whatever's not needed. And I think, you know, as Indigenous women, we are sometimes put on pedestals to carry forth these traumas that our families or our parents endured, or maybe our children are enduring. And at times it can feel like totally overwhelming. And so just that aspect of coming back to the water and coming back to direct relation to uh, to, to the land, even if you're in a colonial institution. I love that you bring up the cup of the water. I'm like, I'm sure people would be talking about me if I, if I was whispered into the water, but I mean, it's for my own mental, spiritual, emotional well-being. And I love that you bring up that you're, you're Cherokee Nation. And I'm curious to know, like, what does being Cherokee mean to you? And was that something that you've always, like, known or what did you find more of your indigenous identity and roots later um, in your journey? Sure. So I should clarify, I'm not a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I'm a Cherokee descendant. And Mm. it's something that I've always known. And that's always been meaningful to me. And it's just kind of been woven into my daily life, but also been a journey where I continue to learn more as I get older, just as as an African American woman, I continue to learn more about my African American heritage as I get older. But basically, I can remember things like being little and the seasons starting to change and get colder at the end of the year. And my mom going out and gathering pine needles and making us pine needle tea because Mm. it's a wonderful thing to take to um, boost your immune system. And I'm going to sound like a pharmaceutical commercial here, but don't take it if you're pregnant or could be pregnant. I don't want anyone listening to this get injured. But if you aren't pregnant, it is a a wonderful way to boost your immune system or I always grew up with the story of how when my grandmother was a little girl living on a farm, one of her brothers was chopping wood and she was just playing behind him, not paying attention. And he brought the axe back and actually chopped her head open. 
And so yeah. she went to her own grandmother, whom uh, basically used a traditional Cherokee remedy. She took some ashes, put it in the womb, put her he- mm. head back together, you know, blew on it, mixed her breath with it. Breath is really a p- key part of uh, Cherokee healing and healed mm. my grandmother. But then mm. the other part of that lesson is that when family elders were teaching me different remedies, they'd always say, but you can't use that one anymore. The earth, mm. Elohi, is too polluted. And mm. so I understood that the world can heal us, but also we have this responsibility to care for the earth and it's this reciprocal relationship. And if you don't take care of the earth, the earth won't be able to take care of you. So just mm. little things like that were kind of woven into the fabric of my upbringing. And then uh, as I've gotten older, I've explored my heritage in other ways. I'm a bead worker. I'm a fancy shawl dancer. And I just try and keep growing because I really want to be, um, you know, as you say, a matriarch. I want to uh, <laughs> just kind of pass on as much as I can to um, the men and women who are coming after me. Mm-hmm. And I love that you brought up matriarchy because, yeah, the matriarch movement is all about um, what what does it mean to be a matriarch? And I'm curious to know, like, in your own definition and in your own words, how would you describe the word uh, matriarchy to yourself and to your own lineage? So I think about matriarchy in the Cherokee context. When the colonizers first came to America, there was this chief, Chief Atakulakula, who came with a delegation of ambassadors to meet with them. And some of those ambassadors were men and some were women. And when the colonists came, all their ambassadors were male. And Chief Atakulakula was so surprised. He said, where are your women? He was stunned. And to me, that's what matriarchy means, that I feel blessed to have this culture and my heritage that has always honored the gifts of women, that has Mm. always held women as sacred because we're the ones who bring life into the world. And I think that uh, just in the modern day, continuing to recognize the sacredness of women in a world that often doesn't, you know, in the Mm -hmm. United States, Native American women face the most, uh, the highest rates of rape of women of any race um, because of different legal loopholes. It's Mm. almost, it can be very difficult to prosecute a rape claim against a non-Native person on Indian land of a Native American woman or even a Native American child. You know, there's so much in this world that tells us as Native women that we aren't valuable. We can even Mm -hmm. disappear. And it's like no one even notices that we're missing. You you know, Mm -hmm. missing and murdered Indigenous women very rarely make the news. But just remembering who we are, who our cultures originally believed us to be and tapping mm-hmm. into that heritage is so important. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Um, yeah. Like uh, even though the statistics are essentially a- against us, um, there's so many women that are reclaiming their power and their voices and their truth. And it, for me, that is like healing, not only ourselves, but our entire bloodline and even the like multi-generations. And so it's like deep, deep, deep work. And then at the same time, it is like we do have to come face to face with the realities that it is difficult and hard and sometimes comes with struggles existing as um, as an Afro-Indigenous, as an Indigenous woman. And so I'm curious to know, like, 
for us in Canada, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in the Two-Spirit crisis, you know, we have the 231 calls to justice. We have the framework to start implementing that within the federal institution and to start you know, working towards healing and so that no other woman has to go missing or murdered. But I'm curious to know, in the States, is there any framework that they're working with? How does, how, how is the missing and murdered Indigenous women and wor- girls epidemic affecting the States currently? And is there any progress into healing and making sure it doesn't happen anymore? So one of our main legal legal frameworks is the Violence Against Women Act, which is often uh, shortened into VAWA. It wasn't very long ago when basically if a non-Native person raped a Native person on Native land, the tribal government couldn't prosecute the non-Native rapist. The state government couldn't prosecute either. It would have to be the federal government that would deign to prosecute it. And the federal government would rarely do so. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been um, expanded rights for tribal governments to protect Native women and children and men who get raped. But it's very limited. Basically, it's only in the context of intimate partner violence. And so, you know, most rape actually is acquaintance rape. And so it does help people who get you know, tragically raped by a husband or by a boyfriend. But if you get raped by a stranger, there's still very little recourse. And so we are making some progress, but to call something that incremental progress is frankly a travesty. Mm-hmm. And yeah, at times it can feel um, like there's there's a lot of talk and there's not a lot of action. Like there's a lot of performative um gestures gestures that happen within the states and within canada such as like you know we just had national truth and reconciliation day um the quote-unquote holiday which i don't it's not holiday it was like a national day of observance but these performative acts what do they actually change within the systems and the structures in itself and so sometimes i can feel like there's so much work to still yet to be done. And why is it always on the backs of indigenous women too, Mm -hmm. at the same time? And so I'm curious to know, do you have any, um, do you have any rituals or protocols or routines that ground you um, when you are feeling overwhelmed or burnt out? Oh, absolutely. One of them for me is bead work. And the trick to bead work is you can't do it to calm yourself down or to soothe yourself, to make yourself feel better. And the reason is, is because um, we believe that when you do bead work, you sow your current emotions into your project. And Mm -hmm. so if you're beating angry and sad (laughs) and worried, that's what you're sowing into what you're making. And so you have to calm yourself down in order to do it. And we think of it also as putting your medicine into what you're creating. And so Mm -hmm. if I'm making something for someone and I'm thinking loving thoughts for them and I'm praying uh, to the creator for them, when I give that to them, it's going to have that medicine I put in it Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be part of the gift. But if I'm uh, beating this and I'm so worried and anxious, well, heaven forbid I give that to somebody. That's not the medicine that I want to put into their lives. And so I think for me, having a practice that 
requires me to tend to my spirit. And I think just the fact that Native American practices are more than just the, you know, the art or the craft itself, that there's spiritual preparation for doing that work is really grounding, that it reminds Mm. me. I think that prohibition is there for a reason. It reminds me to just kind of practice good spiritual hygiene. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I love the concept of um, almost taking some of these spiritual practices into our professional work and to our work life. And so do you apply some of the same principles or values when you are working within um, the firm and within being a lawyer with your clients? Um, How do you prepare for like your next client? Oh, absolutely. So one way Cherokee Nation or just people of Cherokee descent prepare themselves for taking on a task that's really important is kind of practicing seven directions thinking. So if you look at Western society, there are four cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. In Cherokee culture, there are seven. There are those four. And then there is also kind of within you and from the Mm. earth and nearest to Netlanahi, the creator. And each of those directions has um, values associated with it. And so from the East, for example, is uh, the spirit of guardianship. And when I'm being a lawyer, I'm being an advocate. I'm being a guardian. And so I try and tap into that. And then as you go around the circle, there are different values such as um, being insightful versus being intellectual versus the emotional part of you. Mm. And then uh, just the connection to the earth, recognizing for example, that some of these cases have environmental components to them or Mm. the connection to God, just always feeling that gratitude and saying, Wado, thank you for the privilege of being a lawyer, for the privilege of getting to advocate for tribal peoples and other clients. Mm. So just, you know, connecting to all those things. And no one knows that you're doing that before you go into the (laughs) room. But for me, that's part of being a lawyer. Well, and I feel like that would sustain you because I feel if you don't have like if you don't have that tool belt, then you could burn yourself out very quickly if you Mm -hmm. don't have those tools to ground you into the work that you're doing. And I know we've mentioned a few times throughout this conversation, this concept of indigenization and decolonization. And so within your own framework and your own lens, how would you define decolonization and what are ways that you implement that within your work and your world? So one thing I learned uh, at Yale Law was from a visiting professor, Sean Watts, who is a Cherokee citizen. He's a lawyer. He's a tribal judge. And he taught us a class on Native American mediation and just how to use a peacemaking circle and as a form of kind of mediation or arbitration and to seek reconciliation. And I think that as a litigator, I'm trained to fight, but I also recognize that there's that other piece, that more traditional piece, is certainly in Cherokee culture, in pre-colonial Cherokee culture, the goal of um, the what I guess was analogous to the modern legal system was reconciliation versus, you know, the adversarial system that we have now. And so I think that for me, just decolonizing my practice means recognizing that there are other tools in the toolkit, mm. recognizing that me and my client winning doesn't have to mean 
someone else and their client losing. And then certainly um, recognizing with tribal nation clients and the clients we hope to serve on the Tribal Affairs Task Force that there's more than one way to solve a problem and that there's a wide range of amenities that we can bring to the people we advocate for and that there's nothing that says that the way we solve problems has to be the Western colonial way of doing it. It's perfectly fine to bring our own cultures into that space and use them as a resource. Mm, Yeah, I believe like dismantling the old... um timelines and the old constructs that we're used to that's a way of decolonization and i know that we've brought up you know advocacy on different levels throughout this conversation and throughout your work obviously and i'm curious to know um there's so many things that we need to advocate for and so what is kind of on your horizon and in terms of advocating for a better future what do you hope to see So there are two more initiatives that are kind of close to home that I can speak to specifically, and then I can speak more broadly. But uh, two things that I'm trying to help launch at the firm. And again, as I say, I'm really lucky to have a firm that's really uh, supportive of basically Native peoples and peoples of color and diversity, equity, and inclusion are virtual career days and then a um, system of basically college or law school application counseling for Native students. And so there's this saying in African-American culture that you can't be what you ain't seen. And as I said, law is the whitest profession. People of color are much less likely than white people to have a parent who's a lawyer or sometimes even to know somebody who's a lawyer. And so Mm -hmm. if you don't really see people in your community practicing law, it may not be on your radar. It may not seem like a feasible future for you. And so one thing that we'd like to do is have virtual career days, talk to Native American students over Zoom and maybe in person if the pandemic ever ends, you know, (laughs) students who are from middle school to uh, upper school and just talk to them about what being a lawyer is like and roadmap how you become one. And then the other piece is reaching out to Native American college seniors and hopefully pairing them with attorneys at the firm who can serve as their personal law school application guides. Because Mm. if you look at a school like Harvard Law, the average Mm -hmm. person who gets into Harvard Law spent $3,000 in the application process from the LSAT, the standardized test that you have to take in the United States to go into law school. They'll have a tutor or they'll take an expensive class. They'll bring Mm -hmm. in all these people to help them. That's not feasible for most white people. And white people are on the the good side of the wealth gap (laughs) in the United States. It's certainly not feasible for most people of color or Native American people. And so if we can make that playing field fair, because Mm. just the the struggles of getting into law school are one of the things that keeps, you know, Native American people and other people of color out of the law profession. And so if we Mm -hmm. can do something to make that playing field fair, that's Mm. one of the ways that... I want to just and help make the future better, basically by making sure that more people like us are shaping the future, that more of us get into the boardroom and the courtroom and the decision-making tables. But I think just broadly, one thing that I'm passionate about is just teaching people how to be leaders wherever they are. This is something that I discuss in my forthcoming book, Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community. But I think that sometimes people feel that you have to wait until 
you've done something else you haven't currently done, you have some title you don't currently have before you can be a leader, but however far you think you have to go, there is someone who would be so grateful to be where you are. And so I think that if there was just a future where all of us realize we have something to share, that we are matriarchs and patriarchs and even ancestors in this current moment, then the future would be so much better. Just tapping into that ancestor energy. And the way I put it is that when you realize you're an ancestor, a modern day living ancestor, instead of just asking yourself, was today, you know, productive, you ask yourself, was tomorrow impacted? And I just think mm-hmm. the more the more people have that ethos, the better our future will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and it's bringing it full circle and coming back to the seven generation prophecy and looking like seven generations ahead. Like, is this just for my individual success, my individual self, or is this the help of the whole and for our communities and our nations? And I hope, like, I hope to see more lawyers and I hope to see more Indigenous people within governance itself. And I, I love that you mentioned that even the concept of even applying to law school can seem almost unattainable because I've also, honestly, that's why I didn't get into law. I was like, yo, I, this seems like way too much work. I'm not mentally prepared for this. And so my next question would be for future, um, for the younger future lawyers out there who are Indigenous what would your advice be to the younger generation if they are on this path of becoming a lawyer or getting into law? Sure. So I can speak to the United States system. Our system of higher education is a little bit quirky, but, uh, you know, here we have to do four years of undergraduate school and then three years of law school. And so what's really important when you're an undergraduate is to take serious classes. There is educational value in everything. But I can say if you take something like Beyonce studies, which is a real class, I didn't make that up, (laughs) a law school um, admissions office is going to look at that a bit side-eyed. So just taking things that are really serious, learning a foreign language can be a wonderful asset. Uh, showing yourself to be a leader. You want to have extracurriculars that show your leadership strengths. You want to have a community service practice, which I think is pretty natural for most Native American people in Cherokee culture. One of our main values is Gadugi, everyone working together to lift each other up. So I think most Native American people are involved in community service. And then in your um, academic studies, you want to be taking the hardest classes you can, making the best grades you can in them. Don't be afraid to get some tutoring, to go to office hours, to ask that upperclassman for advice, to ask that nerd in your class who seems to do it so effortlessly for advice. Get whatever help you need. And then it can be wonderful to have an experience between college and law school. So to go on a fellowship, to do some sort of... um, interesting job. Like in America, we have Teach for America where they take um, very high ranking students and they put them into the poorest classrooms in the country. Do something like that. That'll Mm. be meaningful to you, but that'll also build your resume. And then I think the most important thing is Don't hold back anything when you're getting ready to apply for law school. If there's one place you want to spend money, it's in the application. I did my law school application so ridiculously. I just got a book from Barnes & Noble, a little $20 book, How to Study for the LSAT, and took the LSAT. 
And it worked out for me, but there's a saying that God protects little children and fools. Like that could have gone so wrong. Like take a class, get a tutor. You're competing against people who did those things. If you need to take a second job, if you need to ask your family for resources, invest in law school. And then when you're picking a law school, don't um, have a sense of false economy. And what I mean by that is sometimes people think, well, I don't want to go into a lot of debt, so I'm going to go someplace that's more affordable for these three years. But what they don't realize is you really want to try and get into a top law school and then to get to actually attend that law school because you, your focus shouldn't be on saving so much money the first three years that you mm. limit your earnings over the next 40 years. Because- if you, you know, if you want to have that money so that you can support your community, like, wouldn't it be mm. great to be able to support somebody else's education coming after you? Mm. Wouldn't it be great if there's an elder in your community who needs help paying the light bill or the water bill to pitch in with that? Mm. You know, it's not about greed. It's about having the resources to empower our people. And so that would be my advice for getting into law school. Thank you for that. Cause like, that's something that you're not gonna buy in a book at Barnes and Normal. <laughs> You've already gone through the process, but I mean, that's great that you have that as part of your story too. I think that's like a part of the journey too, is, you know, making mistakes, being humble, learning from those mistakes and then continuing on, the, on a new cycle. Um, and I think, you know, this idea of leadership and new cycles and becoming lawyers and existing in new uh, spaces within colonial places, there's this idea of futurism. And so I'm curious to know, like, in your mind's eye, what do you hope, what, how does Indigenous futurism, Afro-Indigenous futurism, what do you hope for uh, in the future? So I hope for a future that looks a lot more like the past in some ways. And I think it's important not to romanticize the past, but I also think it's important to recognize the good things about our heritages and to bring them into the future. So, you know, I told that story about Chief Atakuakula bringing female ambassadors with him when he was meeting with the colonists. But the first female chief of the Cherokee Nation in modern times was within living memory. So you can see how colonialism really limited women's power. And that didn't mm. just happen in America, that happened all over the world. So if you look at, for example, in Africa, People often think that Africa is a sexist continent and that that's traditional. And really, that's a product of colonialism. So, for example, when the British came to uh, Nigeria, to West Africa, to what's now Nigeria, Igbo women, one of the main ethnic groups in Nigeria, had a lot of power. They had political power. They had economic power. They were entrepreneurial. And the British in their own society believed that, you know, women should basically just be in the home and not have any public facing power. And so they shaped Nigeria to be more like that. And in fact, there was even a war called the Igbo Women's War, where the British had to basically break the power of Nigerian women 
to take over the country. And so I think it's just important to recognize that we have these, you know, these examples from our heritages, whether it's Igbo women and their political power and their entrepreneurship, whether it's Cherokee women and the roles that they played in pre-colonial Cherokee society. And I think we can look to that for our future. We can say, hey, you know, if we were ambassadors back then, why aren't there a lot of us in Congress now? Like, let's make the future like that. If Igbo women had power like that then, then, you know, they should be have a, a significant place in Nigerian society now. I think that we don't have to feel, we don't have to look outside of ourselves mm. or our heritages from solutions all the time. Sometimes we just need to learn our history and we can use that as a roadmap for our future. Mm-hmm. Such medicine and so much of that. And I, it's a great reminder to remember that we did exist in these roles, like before, like before colonization, before capitalism. And we inherently have access to these gifts and to this power still. We may have just forgotten because of the conditioning of the colonial system in itself. And I feel like that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to kill your spirit. And so you're constantly seeking external forces to validate your existence when it should be from the inside out. And so it's a great reminder to reflect on our creation stories and to reflect on our teachings and the people, um, our ancestors and how they utilize that power. And I know for you, you're utilizing your power in so many different forms right now, whether it's beadwork or whether it's dancing or whether it's going to the firm. And so for the rest of 2021, I know you have a book um, coming out. How how has that journey been for you? And how can people support um, your book, Tactics for Racial Justice? Thank you. So I wrote the book um, in six months. That's how long I had arranged uh, for with my publisher to write it. But sometimes I say I've been writing that book all my life because mm-hmm. I... Being a lawyer is not my first time being a minority and, uh, you know, being the only one in the room. It's basically been like that since I was a little kid. I went from kindergarten through 12th grade in a predominantly white college preparatory private school. And then I went to uh, Dartmouth for undergrad, which in the one sense it was wonderful because Dartmouth has the largest population of Native American students of any private college or university in the United States. Um, and my year, actually 5% of our class was Native American. So we were actually overrepresented in our class and that's almost unheard of in a university. But at the same time, it was a very white university. You know, uh, black people are 15% of the United States population, only 9% of the Dartmouth population. And I think about how the black students who entered Dartmouth as freshmen didn't graduate. And then, mm. of course, uh, Harvard is where I got my doctorate and my master's degree, and Yale is where I went to law school. And those are also very white universities, too. And so I'm just used to always being the only one in the room and navigating that. And it taught me things though, you know, I, I, it should, those spaces should have been more diverse, but they taught me things about diversity. And Mm -hmm. so uh, my book basically covers how to handle incidents of explicit racism, how to discuss and debate race and racism effectively, how to make systemic change and deal with systemic racism, how Mm. to reckon with the past, and then how to make significant change, even if you don't 
feel like you have any power. And so the idea behind the book is that it's not teaching people that racism exists or that it's wrong. It's for people who already know that racism exists, but want concrete skills so that Mm. whoever they are, they can make a major impact in fighting it. Mm. I think those are questions that are often brought up is I know from an a lot of non-Indigenous people is how can I actively um, support Indigenous communities and actively dismantle my own racism and my own biases. And so I know you have a whole book on it. And so I'm eager to read and to dive into your book, but for maybe some like tangible, not quick, but like tangible actions that listeners can implement to support Indigenous communities, what would your advice be for non-Indigenous people? Sure. So I think that it can be very important to just know who are the indigenous people near you and then what are their specific needs as a nation or as a people. You know, some people are fighting against pipelines that are going to bring contamination to their local water supply. Some people are fighting for the cause of missing and murdered indigenous women. A lot of communities um, in the United States are fighting very hard to preserve the Indian Child Welfare Act that basically was designed to keep Native American children from being ripped out of Native American homes at very high rates and placed into non-Indigenous homes. There are legal protections for children. They're always under threat, though. And so Mm. just uh, reach out to your local tribal nation and see what it is they're facing and then in what way it can be appropriate for you to ally with them. But then uh, also recognize that the Holocaust is not just something that happened in Europe. It's something that happened here too. And Mm. the tribal nation whose land you're on may not exist anymore. There are entire Mm. nations that were, you know, slaughtered in United States genocide. And in uh, Germany, there was this process of working off the past. The woman who wrote the foreword for my book, Dr. Susan Neiman, is a Jewish woman. And she talks about how in Europe, they put up memorials everywhere. They did all these rites of commemoration to work off the Nazi past. That's something Mm. we haven't done in the United States. But there are ways to do it even as an individual uh, with a land acknowledgement, for example. When you Mm. begin an event just saying, you know, I'd like to honor the traditional owners of this land or guardians of this land and whichever people that is, uh, even to have a memorial, you know, Mm. that may be something that your community wants to fundraise for that just as when you go to Germany, you see the Holocaust memorials everywhere. There should be memorials to the people who either don't exist at all anymore Mm -hmm. or exist very far away from their homeland because they were ethnically cleansed from it. And so I think just being in solidarity with the people who exist currently and then also honoring the memory of those who no longer exist. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, you brought up so many um, good points and so many good starting points, too, of just taking time to even learn the land of where you currently live and what history um, played out in that territory and also how your family's history affected the current present moment and still to this day. I feel like oftentimes Indigenous people are are healing their bloodline, but there's also non-Indigenous people that also have to do their intergenerational healing and bringing forth and alchemizing and transmuting that trauma as well so that hopefully one day soon we can begin to rekindle and uh, relate, come back into relation and kinship with one another 
And so that being said, how can people support you and your work uh, moving forward? Oh, thank you. Well, people can buy my book on the website of the publisher, Rutledge, which is spelled R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. And your listeners can use a discount code, which is F-L-Y-2-1, all one word, and the letters all capitalized. And then, um, of course, I'm always happy to be of service to tribal nations. And so if you think that you need help from our firm or from the Tribal Affairs Task Force, reach out to us. And, you know, um, maybe we can be of service or maybe because we do a very specific type of law. We do high stakes litigation, arbitration and um crisis management. If there's something that you need that's beyond that, like maybe more criminal justice law, maybe we can point you in the right direction. Mm. And I'm always happy to do um, speaking or workshops. Just, you know, if I can be of service, please let me know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shannon Prince, for again, sharing your wisdom and your medicine and your energy and your expertise. Um, I could literally talk to you all day long. I feel like we could dive into so many topics and conversations. Um, and I look forward to buying your book and following along in your journey. Thank you. Hi, hi for being here. Oh, Widow, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate just everything that you do to support Native American women and this platform that you've created where we can have these dialogues. I love listening to the podcast. I can't believe that I get to be on it, but just thank you so much for having me. Hey, my hands are up to you. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0H at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope.